Well, good evening. Good to see everybody this evening. Glad to have you with us there on Facebook, on Twitter, on YouTube. Be sure to heart to like to share uh, there. Follow us, subscribe on YouTube, retweet us there on Twitter. All that just helps to get that word out uh, with all their al algorithms and things like that to get it out before more people. And then don't forget our phone live streaming also. Uh, we'll be glad to give you that number if you need that. Just call our church office, uh, comment there in the comments. We'll send it to you. Uh, if you're here in person, just see me after the service. I want to encourage you if you have access to the church website at hallabaptistchurch.com. Uh, under the info tab, you can download the worship bulletin there. So be sure to do that. Those are in the windowsills and then the, at the doors as you came in. So be sure to get that. The children's worship bulletins, ages three and up, ages seven and up, they're in the windowsill to my right. Uh, as well as uh, you have that there under that info tab that you can share that link, you can print it uh, yourself at home. Uh, and then also don't forget you have the prayer list uh, that's under that uh, link for the info tab. Be sure to get that downloaded and be praying for those individuals on the list. And then don't forget you can do your online giving. Go to the far right-hand side, click the Give Online tab. Real easy platform, real easy thing to do. Uh, offering envelopes are in the windowsills if you need them uh, for here in person and the offering plates at the front. So Brother Mike, if you'll come. Actually, let me start with prayer and then I'll get Brother Mike to come. Uh, I'm trying to do something a little bit different on, when, on Sunday nights. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for who you are and thank you for the day that you've given us. We pray, God, that you will uh, be with us, your presence will be with us, your spirit will speak to us. Father, we want to worship you in song. We want to worship you uh, with our lives. We want to worship you in the word. Uh, so, Father, may you speak to us through your word tonight. Uh, may it light our hearts to show us any sinfulness in our lives that we might confess those sins before you. Uh, Lord, that we might be in a right relationship with you to be the witness you would have us to be all throughout this coming week. So, uh, bless us tonight as we look at your word. Bless us as we sing praises to your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Brother Mike. I would say take your hymnals, but that, just look on the screen. <laughs> we'll have the hymnals in here before too much longer when we get the pews back in, hopefully pretty quick this month. How firm a foundation, 338. We'll sing the first, second, and fourth verse, Tommy. Ye saints of the Lord Is laid for your faith In his excellent word What more can he say Than to you he hath said To you for refuge To Jesus Desert to his 
Take your Bibles tonight, if you will, and turn to the book of Psalms. Turn to the book of Psalms. That's where we're going to be again tonight, uh, looking at uh, life in the Psalms. And I've entitled tonight's message in Psalm chapter 11, When Everything is Falling Apart. What do you do when everything in your life seems to be falling apart? We're going to begin with verse 1 down through verse 3. So let's stand as we read God's Word in honor of His Word. To the choir master of David, in the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the fountains are destroyed, or the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you tonight for your word. And Lord, I pray that we will see at least some glimpse of the answer to this question that David asks here, that if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Lord, we look around us and we see trouble, we see turmoil, we see chaos, we see problems, whether that's on a larger scale as a nation or whether that's in our individual lives or even in the lives of our family. And Father, we wonder, what can I do when everything is falling apart around me? So Father, I pray that you'll speak to us through your word tonight to give us these truths that we can learn to apply to our lives that'll be a, a foundational truth for us. Uh, Lord, that when those times come or we're in the midst of those times, we'll be able to stand and to weather the storm uh, no matter how it comes. So we give you the glory, we give you the honor for your word, and we ask your blessings on your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. You know, when you read this psalm, it's a little bit difficult to determine the historical background of this psalm, especially when psalms don't tell us specifically what the occasion is uh, that David or whoever wrote the psalm uh, was going through. Some will tell us that. Some will tell us it was when he was fleeing from Saul. Some will tell us it was when he was fleeing from Absalom, or uh, it'll tell us that it was after his sin with Bathsheba. Here it doesn't tell us that. It just says to the choir master of David. Uh, it was a song that the, that the people were to learn. It was a song that the people were to sing. You know, there's a lot of songs in our hymn book that we never sing. Uh, we don't even know them. Uh, we, we have some picked out sometimes on, on Wednesday night when we're practicing, and some people in the choir will be like, I don't know that one. And we're like, wait a second, that's an old, old song. That's been around for years. Uh, we've sang that forever, <laughs> but uh, they don't remember it. So, you know, there's songs in our hymn books that have so much theological truth in them and yet we don't sing them. Now, when you look at the book of Psalms uh, and you go all the way through all these Psalms, you find here that there are 150 Psalms. 
150 songs, prayers uh, that the people would have learned, that they would have sang some of those on their way to Jerusalem. We'll, we'll get to that point uh, eventually when we come back to the book of Psalms uh, sometime later uh, when they had these what they called ascent songs, when they were on their way up to Jerusalem. It was songs that they would sing on their journey uh, to remind themselves of why they were going to Jerusalem to start with. Well, this occasion we don't know. Uh, exactly what happened here. There are several things it could be. Uh, Derek Kidner wrote in his commentary that this is a psalm that comes straight from a crisis. And you're going to see that in these verses. There is a crisis, and verse 3 hints at that, when verse 3 tells us, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Uh, you know, David was often in danger, whether that was uh, being chased by Saul, uh, whether he was in the court of Saul, uh, whether he was in the wilderness uh, or in running from the rebellion of Absalom, uh, his son. Uh, David, uh, he, he fled from Saul's court. Uh, he hid in the wilderness for about 10 years. Uh, he did abandon Jerusalem to, to Absalom, and he did take refuge uh, over the Jordan on the other side. Uh, all of those things which proved to be wise moves, uh, but during, uh, during the crisis described in this psalm, we see that David doesn't flee his post. But he remains on duty, and in the midst of the crisis, so this could have been at the beginning of one of those crises, before he fled, before he left, he was trusting the Lord to protect him, and God did protect him, and God did give him wisdom. But here's the point. Whatever the crisis, this psalm teaches us that we have to choose between fear, which is walking by sight, or trust, which is walking by faith, uh, listening, we have the choice between listening to human counsel uh, or obeying the wisdom that comes from the Lord through His Word. In three movements we're going to see in this one small chapter of verses 1 down through verse 7, that these three movements, in these three movements, David says, trust the Lord, trust the Lord, trust the Lord. Trust the Lord because He's your refuge in verse 1 through verse 3. Trust the Lord because He's on His throne in absolute control in verse 4 through verse 6. And trust the Lord because He is righteous in all His dealings in verse 7. So the very first thing we see here is trust the Lord as your refuge in times of trouble. So when you're facing crisis, when your, your world seems to be falling apart all around you, uh, understand this, fear can drive us to flee in doubt or to stand in faith. When the crisis comes our way, we can say, hey, I, I don't need all this. I, I don't want any part of this. I'm out of here. I'm done. And we can check out. Uh, and that's fear that causes us to flee in doubt. Or we can stand in faith and trust the Lord that God some way, somehow is going to work out all of these things, this crisis that I'm going through to bring glory to His name and to bring good into my life. So David begins this psalm on a note of faith. He begins there in verse 1, and he says right off the bat, In the Lord I take refuge. That's not a question thing. That's not a, an iffy thing for David. David is making a bold statement there of confidence. I am taking my refuge in the Lord. 
And that's a, that's a note of faith there. He takes shelter uh, for protection and safety in his God. Now, we find, as we studied before in a couple of these other Psalms, that this word is in the perfect, uh, the present perfect nuance of verbs that stress that the psalmist uh, trust has continued throughout life. It wasn't just a one-time trust. You know, sometimes we think about our salvation uh, in that respect, that it was a one-time thing that I trusted in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Uh, but what we see here that David's saying is, I trusted him, and I trusted him again, and I trusted him again, and I trusted him over and over and over to the point that I am here today even. So it's that present perfect tense of the verb there that stresses he's continued to trust God throughout his life. He's continued to take refuge in the Lord. And so he says, as he continues on there, uh, he, he's talking about how he's taken his refuge. He is taking his refuge. And he's also saying in there, so don't forget this, he's saying, I did it back there. I trusted the Lord initially. I trusted the Lord to the point I got to now, but I'm going to keep on trusting the Lord all the way out into the future no matter what happens. And so well-intended counselors might have told David, David, you need to get out of here. You're going to die. In fact, we find that in the Scriptures that he had uh, his men uh, who were telling him he, he needed to get, he needed to go because uh, he was going to get killed. Uh, and so uh, well-intended counselors may have told him to escape uh, to the mountains like a bird. Uh, but that is rarely the best option for men and women of faith. Because we don't have to, to run away in fear. Uh, we don't have to become some, some evangelical hermit or, or, or withdraw to some monastery. Uh, we don't have to become a recluse. Uh, in, in verse 2 and verse 3 here, David tells us why his advisors told him to flee. He says in verse 1, he said, How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to the mountain? Verse 2, for behold, the wicked bend the bow. He says they've already got the bow pulled back. They've got the arrow laid on to the, they've got it notched into the bow. They're ready to let it go. They're just going to, they're not even going to wait till it gets daylight to see what they're shooting. Uh, they're going to shoot in the middle of the night to hopefully bring down the righteous, to hopefully bring you down. And so that's what he's saying there. He says that uh, in, in verse 2, they bent the bow, they fitted the arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. And that's what his counselors are telling him. David, you need to flee to the mountains like a bird because they are ready right now. They're not going to wait. They're about to do this right now. And he's saying uh, their attacks come from the shadows. They're, they're secretly attacking, going to attack in the dark, not out in the open. Their goal was to kill the righteous before they even see it coming. And then in verse 3, he takes the crisis to a whole new level. From the personal level, we move to the societal, to the cultural, to the national, if you will, level. It, this is one of the most quoted verses in Scripture uh, that we read in verse 3. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Now think about that for just a moment. We live here, 
I say, and you probably say also, in the greatest nation on the face of this planet. We live in a free society, not to say our society is perfect, not to say our nation is perfect by any means, but we live in a, in a great nation here in America. But think about this. What if everything that's the foundation of who we are as a nation crumbled and it was gone tomorrow? What would the righteous do? That's the crisis and the whole new level that David is taking things to here. It's not just a personal thing anymore. This affects everybody. What if the foundations are destroyed? What happens then with the righteous. You know, when the foundations of a society, when the foundations of a nation's laws and its government and its justice begins to crumble, what are the righteous to do? Uh, what we find out in this, in the very first part we've already read here, is that we're not to flee like a bird to the mountains for, to safety. Because w when you do that, what are you doing? You're putting your trust in the mountain. You're putting your trust in the objects to protect you, to save you. Uh, so uh, wherever that might be for us here in, in your life, in your situation, there is nowhere that you can go to to find true safety except in the Lord. And, and so you need to remember that and understand that. We're not to flee like a bird uh, to, to the so-called safety of the mountains. We're to flee to the Lord who is a sure and certain refuge. He is our place of safety. No matter what's happening around us, no matter how bad things get, even if the foundations of everything crumbles, we're to run to the Lord. You don't run to any person. You don't run to any institution. We trust in a Savior who is a warrior king, who has a sharp sword coming out of his mouth, the Bible says, uh, to, to strike down the nations and who will rule them with a rod of iron. Charles Wesley, uh, who wrote over 6,500 hymns, did you know that? That's a lot of hymns. Uh, over 6,500 hymns he wrote. He was used by God in the first great awakening. And he wrote this hymn called Jesus, Lover of My Soul. And it says this, Other refuge have I none, hangs my soul on thee. Leave, oh, leave me not alone, still support and comfort me. All my trust on thee is stayed, all my help from thee I bring. Cover my defenseless head with the shadow of thy wing. The first thing we need to recognize, to realize, to understand, to apply from this chapter that David has brought us to here is that we need to trust in the Lord as our refuge in times of trouble. Secondly, we need to trust the Lord who is sovereign over all things. Now, what does that mean? I mean, we use that word sometimes, sovereign. It, just a simple definition of it just means he's in control. Uh, he, is, he is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. There's nothing he doesn't know. Uh, there, there's everything he sees. Uh, he hears everything. He's everywhere at the same time. So there's nothing on the other side of the planet uh, in the darkness where they are right now uh, that he doesn't know about as much as he knows even right here where we are uh, in the daylight. The Lord is sovereign over all things. He controls all things. He holds all things. He sustains all things in his hands. And so we come to verse 4. 
And in verse 4, David says, We should flee to the Lord, trust Him as our refuge, even when everything else is falling apart. Notice how he puts it in verse 4. The Lord is in His holy temple. Now, if you just stop right there, where is the holy temple? For them, it was in Jerusalem. They had the, the temple that was built there. But notice what he goes on to say. He says, the Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. So you get the emphasis here in this verse uh, that, that you get these two fundamental, foundational, powerful affirmations that come here in verse 4. The Lord is, on, is in His holy temple, and then secondly, His throne is in heaven. Now that word holy is one of the most important words in Old Testament theology. In the Bible, this is one of the primary attributes of God. He's the holy one, and there's no one who is like Him. He is incomparably holy. That means that He's set apart from all others. He is unique. There's no one like Him. There's no other God that man has created uh, that is like Him. There's no other thing in this earth or in this universe uh, that is like Him. The pro uh, let, me, let me finish these uh, two verses here uh, as we go on in verse 5, and then I'll pick up with a verse here that reaffirms that. So verse 5 says, The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. So, so that's some verses we're going to get to in just a moment. But in looking at who God is and His holiness and that there's no one like Him on this earth or even in this universe, the prophet Habakkuk tells us this in Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 20. He reminds us, but the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. Now, He's in His temple, but the Lord is also on His throne in heaven. He reigns in sovereign authority over all that He has created. His authority is absolute. His authority is unrivaled. And from His throne, His eyes see. In fact, that's what we see there in verse 4. Uh, for the Lord is holy in His temple. The Lord's throne is in, the heaven, is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of men. And so from His heavenly throne, God is above all. He sees things we don't see. He sees things from a different perspective than we do. Not only does He see from above, He sees it from beginning to end. He already knows what's going to happen uh, at the end. And so from His earthly th throne, He sees it all. Nothing escapes His gaze. Nothing happens that He doesn't see. Uh, X-ray vision belongs to the sovereign Lord. Hey, he can see through anything, see through your heart to the deepest motives of why you do the things that you do. And with such an omniscient power, notice what verse 5 tells us. It tells us in verse 5 that the Lord examines or tests who? The righteous. Doesn't say the lost people. Doesn't say the heathens out there. Doesn't say the Gentiles. Doesn't say the people that are outside the tribes of Israel. It says he judges, he tests the righteous. He tests the righteous. One commentator said, 
that the word violence, because he goes on to say that he hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. One commentator said that the word violence refers to a variety of acts of violence, ranging from social injustices to injurious language. Uh, the wicked are people who ultimately promote such violence. They might call it something else, shrewd business dealings or social reformation or even ethnic cleansing. But if it destroys people in the process, it is wicked violence. Doesn't matter what we call it. God calls sin, sin. And so the psalmist declares, the Lord hates violence with all his being. Literally, he, he, his soul hates violence. Now, when we look around and we see the problems of life and we see all of the violence that goes on around us, you see all those things. You see all the, the circumstances around us. But when you look up to the Lord, by faith, you see the answer to the problems. So, so understand this, and we've said this phrase before, when the outlook is grim, try the uplook. When you're looking out at things and it looks terrible, start looking up. Start looking to Jesus. Start looking to the Lord. And so David said, in the Lord I put my trust. Because he knew that God was on the throne in his holy temple in heaven and that he saw everything the enemy was doing. Now, we talked about this last time, but when he talks about this temple, for us as the New Testament believer, where's the temple? It's not a place in Jerusalem, it's here. Do you not know that your body is the temple? The Holy Spirit dwells within you. And so we need to remember that, that the power of the Almighty God dwells within us, and that's where we need to put our trust is in Him. God is on His throne, and He ought to be on His throne in your heart and your life. But so often for us, we put our own selves on the throne of our life. We're the one that we think should be in control. And so the Lord, He says here, He says, I test the righteous. I try the righteous. I examine the righteous. That word try or test in verse 4 carries with it the idea of testing metals by fire. Like in Jeremiah eleven twenty 20 or 17, 10, God's eyes penetrate into our hearts and our minds. Let me ask you this. You ever have your mama give you that look? And you knew. She knew. It was like she was staring right through you. She knew what you had done, and you knew she knew. Here's another way to look at it, too. Husbands, your wife ever gave you that look? <laughs> you know the look. It's like laser beams coming right out to you, isn't it? He says that's the way the eyes of the Lord are. He's, his eyes are penetrating into our hearts, penetrating into our minds. You think you've hidden your sinfulness from everybody, but you've not hidden it from God because his eyes penetrate to the darkest recesses of your heart. God's eyes penetrate. He, he's also like a refiner's fire. We've talked about this before. Zechariah chapter 3 and verse 2 through verse 3 says this, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? So when the Lord Jesus comes again, who in the world is going to be able to stand before him? Nobody, because the Bible says that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
So you're not going to stand before God in your boldness and your egotisticalness, your selfishness that we stand now in. You're going to fall down before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so he says, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Now, it doesn't say in verse 2 there that he's, he's like a forest fire or he's like an incinerator's fire. It says that he's like a refiner's fire. Because think about that. A forest fire destroys indiscriminately. An incinerator it consumes completely. But verse 6 goes on to say, you're not consumed. You are not destroyed. You're not consumed. You're not destroyed. He's a refiner's fire. And that makes all the difference. A refiner's fire doesn't destroy indiscriminately like a forest fire. It doesn't consume completely like the fire of an incinerator. A refiner's fire refines. It purifies. It melts down that bar of silver or melts down that bar of gold. And the impurities begin to separate from that, the very thing that it's ruining the value of. You know, it's kind of like you, if you've seen guys who've gone prospecting and they find a nugget of gold, it's usually got all kind of other impurities in it. It doesn't look like what we see as a, a gold bar that's already been melted down and the impurities have, have been removed from it. But he's saying that's what his, his refiner's fire is like. He, he melts down, it's like he melts down the bar of silver or gold. He separates out the impurities that ruin the value. Uh, he takes a ladle and scrapes those things off the top uh, and burns them up and, and then leaves the silver and the gold intact. You know how the refiner knows that the process is completed when he looks over into the vat of that precious metal and he sees his reflection clearly. That's what God is wanting to do with his piercing eyes, with his testing of the righteous, is to purify us, to refine us. He's like a refiner's fire. And that does say fire. So, so purity and holiness are always a dreadful thing. We don't like to talk about the holiness of God. Because when we talk about the holiness of God, man, we feel pretty bad. But because we begin to recognize in comparison to God, my, my righteousness, all the righteous good deeds I could ever do are like filthy rags before Him. If I compare myself to somebody else, I can make myself look good. I can say, look at all these things I did. Look at that sorry scoundrel back there and what he didn't do. But when I compare myself to God and to His Word, I'm nothing. I'm less than a worm. And the Lord tests the righteous. His soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. And so purity and holiness will always be a dreadful thing. There always and ought to always be a proper fear and trembling in the process of becoming pure. We learn it from the time that we're little children. What do we learn as little children? Never play with fire. I didn't learn that when I was, a, just before being a teenager, I think it was, I set some woods on fire. <laughs> you know what I got? 
I got my, I got on fire, that's for sure. That's right. <laughs> I thought that I, I, we've been out in the woods in a neighbor's property next to my grandmother's, and uh, my brother likes to bring this up all the time, so I'll bring it up, and that way if he's watching, he'll know I told it this time. <laughs> he likes to make those little digs there sometimes. Uh, but I thought that I was doing great. We were out there making these little fires, and, and it got a little windy. And I thought, oh, look, there's this nice stump over here. It's got a hollowed-out place in it. That'll protect it from the wind. So I built my little fire in there, and I, uh, we burned a fire and then heard my grandmother blowing on her horn. We needed to go back to her house. And so I took some dirt and threw it over on it. Well, I don't know if you, I'm assuming most everybody around here knows what a fat lighter stump is or a fat lighter wood. It's got a lot of sap in it. That's what this stump was. <laughs> it was a fat lighter stump. So even though I threw that dirt on it, there were still embers that were still uh, burning down in there. And, and that, that wind began to fan that flame and it set that on fire and it set the woods on fire and the forestry department had to come out. And I got a whipping from my grandmother and I got a whipping from my mama when I got home. Uh, fortunately, it didn't hurt anybody. It just burned a, a couple acres of some woods there. Uh, but uh, fire is something you don't play with. It, it's a good lesson to learn when you're growing up. Here's the thing we need to learn. Christianity is not something you play with. The passion for purity is never flippant. God is like a fire, and fire is serious. You do not fool around with it. But it does say he's like a refiner's fire. And therefore, it isn't just a word of warning. It's also a tremendous word of hope that Zechariah gives us. And so the furnace of affliction in the family of God is always for refinement, never for destruction. The Lord always tests the righteous, why? To bring out the best in them. So when you read here that David says, the Lord tests the righteous, but his whole soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. He's not doing this for, for, for destruction upon the righteous. He's doing it for the purpose of refinement to the righteous, to make us pure, complete, lacking nothing. So it's more than just a word of, of, of warning. It's a tremendous word of hope because the furnace of, of affliction in the family of God is always for refinement, never for destruction. The Lord tests the righteous to bring out the best in us. But you know what Satan wants to do? He wants to tempt us to bring out the worst in us. And so when we trust the Lord in the difficulties of life, our trials will work for us and not against us. So David uses three images here to describe the judgment of God in verse 6. He, he uses these three images. First, he saw fire and brimstone descend on them, such as the Lord sent on Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, he sees that in the first part of verse 6. 
He says, let them rain coals on the wicked. And then he sees a terrible storm destroying the enemy, uh, a scorching wind. He says, let, let the rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur. That was what fell on Sodom and Gomorrah. And then he says, and a scorching wind shall be the portion uh, of their cup. That scorching wind is like the wind that so often blew uh, across the desert. Those hot desert winds in the Middle East were devastating on the vegetation. Any grass that grew up, any beautiful little flowers uh, that grew up, uh, when those scorching winds came off of the desert, uh, overnight those plants could be parched and withered. In fact, that's what Jesus means uh, when he says uh, that the flowers of the field are here today and gone tomorrow. David used that image of the storm in his song about deliverance, his deliverance from his enemies, uh, from King Saul in Psalm 18. And then that third image is that of the poisonous potion in a cup. So you got the scorching wind, which shall also be the portion of their cup. Now, what is this cup here? Think about that. Drinking the cup is often a picture of judgment from the Lord. It's a certain destiny. It's saying that this is signed, sealed, and settled. It's a reality. It's going to happen. Trust the Lord as your refuge in times of trouble. Trust the Lord who is sovereign over all things. And trust the Lord who is righteous in who He is and what He does. We come to the conclusion in verse 7. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. So what does God have planned for his own people? Verse 7 provides here really an appropriate conclusion for us to Psalm chapter 11. And it ends for us in this psalm on a note of comfort and encouragement because remember he was at a point of despair when he says if the foundations crumble what are the righteous to do? The Lord is righteous is what he comes to the conclusion to say. He's the one who is righteous. In his nature he is the one who is good. He is the standard of all that is right and good. In fact the Bible repeatedly over and over tells us that none of us are any good. None are good. No not one. And forever he opposes the wicked. Forever he opposes the violent. He loves those who do righteous deeds. People who do the right thing in the right way at the right time for the right reason. And the right reason is always for the glory of the Lord. When you do that, you have the smile of heaven on you. The psalm ends here, though, with a promise. Notice at the end here, he said he loves the righteous deed. And then he says the upright shall behold his face. The upright shall behold his face. Uh, to, to see the face means to have access to a person, uh, such as to see a king's face. Now think about that. In the Old Testament especially, in those days, even in the New Testament, uh, when you had people like King Herod, uh, you see this emphasized here. Standing before a king was a dreadful thing. Why? Because the king held life in one hand and death in the other. 
If you came before a king, this is why Esther, you remember Esther? Uh, when she prayed and she had others who were fasting and praying for her because she was going to go before the king uh, to ask him to intervene in their situation because she knew that he held within his hands the power of life and death. On the one hand, the king could give blessing with his hand. If you, if you had the right thing to say or, or you brought the right thing before him that pleased him, there was blessing uh, from him. But on the other hand, if he didn't like what you had to say, if he didn't like what you did, uh, he could take your life with just a movement of his hand. Here's what we see. For the Lord is righteous, and he loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. For God, for us to behold God's face, if God were to turn his face away to reject us, what a horrible thing that would be. But for him to look upon us with delight means he's going to bless us. So when Jesus returns in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 8 and verse 10, here's what it says. In flaming fire, there's that holiness, the justice of God, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. When He comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Those who have rejected him are going to be cast out away from the presence of the Lord, from the glory of his power, while his own children, those who have been upright, are going to be welcomed into his presence. Matthew 25 and verse 34, when Jesus was talking uh, about heaven also, he said, then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So there before a king in, in the great judgment, there are going to be those who, who the king is going to say, come, you are blessed uh, by, by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. But there's going to be another group that he's going to turn to and say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. And so notice as, as you see what's happening here, and as you go back to that little phrase at the end of verse 6, the portion of their cup. The wicked drink the cup of God's wrath because of their violence on this earth. But here's something interesting to notice. Thankfully, Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath in our place. The cup of judgment has passed away from those who trust in him as Lord and Savior. Matthew 26, verse 39 says, And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, My Father, if it be possible, let this what pass from me? This cup, this cup of wrath, this cup of judgment pass from me. Because he knew when he went to this cross, that's what he was going to be doing on the cross, was taking all the wrath that should have been on us for our sin on every person around this world who, who would trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. He was taking all of that wrath of God's judgment upon himself so that you could be saved. Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. What a wonderful thing 
that he drank that cup, which we all rightly deserve. We as believers have a future because we will not see his wrath, because he gave us in the place of God's wrath his blood that covers us, that protects us in the judgment. We will instead see his face. We will see the face of God. The upright shall behold his face. Here's what John said in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Here's the promise from God's word. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Why? Because we shall see him as he is. And you remember in the Old Testament uh, when Moses uh, went up on the mountain to, to receive the Ten Commandments? And, and you remember part of the time while he was there, you, you have uh, God speaking to him, and he says, I want to see your glory. And God said, you can't, because it would just consume you. And all of his holiness and all of his righteousness, it would just consume Moses. And so what did Moses do? You remember Moses had to hide behind the cleft of the rock to see just the glow of the glory of God. But think about this. One day you and I are going to see him as he is. What a day that's going to be because we're in him and we will be like him. And because we will be like him, we will see him. What a promise. Trust the Lord as your refuge in times of trouble. David came to learn this and, and wanted the people to learn this, and he wrote this song under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for those Israelites to sing uh, many times over and over and over. Trust the Lord as your refuge in times of trouble. Trust the Lord that, who is a sovereign over all things, and trust the Lord who is righteous in who he is and what he does. What a hope for us when everything around us seems to be falling apart. Trust in the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. What a powerful psalm. Lord, just like so many songs that, that we never even approach in our hymn books for various reasons. We don't have time to sing them all uh, in a service. But yet, Lord, there are so many hymns that have so much great truth. And here in this psalm is a, is a psalm that many of us may have passed over time and time and time again. And yet, what an encouraging reminder to us that when my life seems to be falling apart, I need to do what David learned, trust in the Lord. Lord, when the very foundations of my family or the foundations of our community or the foundation of our nation or even the world seems to be destroyed, Lord, let us trust in you. That's what the righteous are to do. Father, I pray that when we do, may you use it as a witness and testimony to the lost and dying world around us, but may you also use it as an encouragement in our hearts to strengthen us to keep pressing on one moment at a time, one day at a time. Not because of any righteousness within us, but because of who you are and because of what you've done. 
May we trust in you every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to stand and sing our hymn of invitation, I Live for Him, number 298. Maybe the Lord spoke to your heart tonight that you need to come. Maybe you're there online and you need to respond. Just give us a comment there uh, in, the, in the comments there, and we'll, we'll get back with you uh, about maybe any decision or any prayer requests that you may have. Uh, but we want to encourage you to, as we sing, I Live for Him, uh, to respond as we stand, as we sing for our invitation. Brother Mike. in the wrong place. hymns that we don't sing that often, but that's a great one to be singing. I'll live for him. Thank you so much for joining us at home there. Uh, we look forward to seeing you back Wednesday night, 6 o'clock. We'll be not in the book of Micah. We finished the book of Micah this last time, so we'll be in the book of Nahum, uh, which comes right after that. And so come and join us, uh, beginning a new book there. Uh, you'll be receive a wonderful blessing. If you can, come join us in person at 6 o'clock uh, and be praying for a one or two as we're getting closer uh, to the beginning there. We're going to have some uh, teacher training things that are going to be going on soon for that, as well as our kickoff at the end of the month. So be in prayer uh, for Awana as we get ready to kick off that and have our first official night, uh, the Wednesday after Labor Day. So you have a blessed week. Stay safe. We'll see you this coming Wednesday.